an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, before she was the morning meteorologist for Channel 13, M.J. McDermott co-hosted a kid's show with Roscoe T. Raccoon. Roscoe, Roscoe, I'm sorry. I was just going to take your cake back to the bakery because it's got the wrong name on it. No, no, that's not the wrong name. Sure it is. It says, Ronnie, will you be my friend Roscoe? Nobody would put my name on a cake. Nobody would want to be my friend. And then, from the archives, it's been almost a year since the elephant car wash sign packed its trunk and left. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And here it is Friday, time for our resident historian Felix Bunnell to join us for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at why local places and things get the names they've got. And this week, it's the Theodore Roosevelt International Highway, which once connected Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon, which sounds like a major road. Why have I never heard of it? Well, you know, before there were federal highways like old U.S. 10 across Washington in the 1920s or the interstates back in the 50s and up till the present, there was a series of what they called national trails or marked trails that were created or created and promoted by private groups with interest in tourism and the automobile industry. I mean, there was a road, the National Parks Highway from Seattle to Chicago in 1916, the Yellowstone Trail from Seattle to Boston in 1912. These efforts didn't really involve construction. It was more about printing maps and marking the route with signage. World War I ended in late 1918, and the private automobile industry was really taking off. It was a middle-class thing, and states were addressing necessary infrastructure like highways and bridges. And so when mostly beloved former President Teddy Roosevelt died on January 6, 1919, there was a national movement almost right away to name a cross-country highway in his honor. The newsroom in Tacoma published an editorial favoring this about 10 days after Roosevelt died. And this is all in the middle of the Spanish flu pandemic, by the way. Now, a national organization was created in Duluth, Minnesota, began promoting the Theodore Roosevelt International Highway, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, more than 4,000 miles, goes through 12 states, part of Ontario, Canada. Now, around the same time, the U.S. military was looking at domestic preparedness and the need for good cross-country highways. They had a big convoy that left D.C. in July 1919 and went to San Francisco. It took them two months to get there. Wow. They destroyed something like 100 bridges along the way that weren't able to hold up the military vehicles. And a young Dwight Eisenhower was along for the ride and became a lifelong fan of uh, good roads. So the Roosevelt Highway wasn't a federal effort. It was a private initiative that worked with the individual states to designate routes. But oddly enough, it's actually like a precursor to the federal highway system of centralized funding for state-driven roads. And federal dollars began to flow to the Roosevelt Highway as the government recognized the need to be able to move troops and equipment around. And so um, the, getting the highway to route through your town was a desirable thing. Not as game-changing as the railroads 50 years before, but definitely a plum. In fact, the Seattle Chamber of Commerce even tried to convince the national organization to route the highway through Seattle and down to Portland. That didn't make any sense. and It didn't happen, of course. Now, the route in Washington changed a bit in the early years. It always began in Spokane. One version went down to Colfax, over to Dusty, then down to Walla Walla and into Oregon. Another version went through Mabton and down to Bickleton in Yakima and Klickitat counties. I actually found that route on an old map from the 20s I recently got. Getting all the hot spots. Yeah, the the Bickletonians were thrilled. I I just tweeted a copy of that map out. Now, it's also confusing because there was more than one Roosevelt Highway. There was a a state highway up in the Cascades called Roosevelt Highway, and they eventually had one over on the peninsula too. 
There's also one from California to Astoria, you know, over on the coast. Mm -hmm. So Roosevelt was a very popular guy. The whole thing only really lasted about a decade. That national numbering system for the highways came into place in 1925. And as far as I can tell, there is no traces left in Washington, no commemorative signs, nothing. Um, I did talk to this professor named Max Skidmore, who's the authority on this, and he gave me the directions on the, with the current highway numbers if you want to recreate the route through Washington. We'll have that at My Northwest later. Uh, very few images that I can get my hands on. It's just really a phantom highway. Last thing, it used to end in Portland at the Teddy Roosevelt statue, which was torn down by demonstrators a year ago Monday. Wow. They even took down Teddy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was National Indigenous People's Anger ah, Day, I think is right. what it was called, and they took right. down Teddy Roosevelt because, like a lot yeah. of people from 100 years ago, he has a mixed sure. record. So Yes, he does. Serving greater Seattle. I was just going to take your cake back to the bakery because it's got the wrong name on it. No, no, that's not the wrong name. It's sure not... it is. It says, Ronnie, will you be my friend Roscoe? Nobody would put my name on a cake. Nobody would want to be my friend. No, that's just the point. All the kids here and I want to be your friend. You do? You want to be my friend? Yeah! yeah! <laughs> that's right, Ronnie. When meteorologist M.J. McDermott retires tomorrow, tomorrow morning from Channel 13, not many people will remember her early years hosting a kid's show on Channel 11, but our resident historian Felix Bunnell certainly remembers, and he's here with an appreciation of MJ's career. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, that clip we heard a moment ago is from the first episode of Channel 11's Roscoe and Ronnie show from the early 1990s. And it's true, before she went back to school at the UW to get her atmospheric sciences degree in the late 90s, 1990s, M.J. McDermott was the human star of the show. I was Ronnie, the delivery person who brought Roscoe's stuff to his, his little house there in the woods. And I will never forget working with Roscoe T. Raccoon and the hand within Roscoe and the voice behind Roscoe was a Winslow Barger, uh, who is one of the sweetest, most creative people in television. I loved working with Winslow and doing that kids show. We were the last children's show in the market to have a live children's audience. End of an era. I think we should have a live children's audience on Seattle's Morning News, but that's another so conversation. Too. Now, people of a certain I've age will recall. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> yeah. Colleen has one, yeah. They interrupt the my show dogs. often, let me tell you. <laughs> now, people of a certain age will recall that MJ was actually the third human host of the show which was originally called Ranger Charlie when it premiered in the late 80s. There were two different Charlies, and when that second Charlie left, Roscoe T. Raccoon, also known as Winslow Barger, helped find a replacement who turned out to be M.J. McDermott. We were pretty successful up to that point, so um, it was kind of a big deal. We probably auditioned at least close to 50 people, I think, for it. She ended up getting the position. She blew us away. She was very funny. <laughs> it was kind of an easy choice. You know, and Winslow Barger grew up watching J.P. Patches, and you can see in the old YouTube clips the J.P. DNA in Roscoe and Ronnie. They showed cartoons, did a lot of slapstick skits involving the young audience. But then television rules changed, and they had to get rid of the audience, and they morphed into doing sort of public service announcements and educational bits about things like famous people in history. And that show ended in 1995. It wasn't long after that when MJ, which stands for Mary Jean, enrolled at the UW to study weather. She had always loved science and had wanted to be an astronaut, she grew up as an Air Force brat, born in Florida, and studied theater at the University of Maryland. Theater was her first love, and that's why she got the job doing the Roscoe and Ronnie show. But as she was finishing up her meteorology studies at the UW in 2000, MJ got a job doing weekend weather for Northwest Cable News and King 5. And then the news director there, Bill Kazarba, came over to Q13. And because I wasn't full-time on contract at Northwest Cable News slash King 5, he said, do you want to come over to Q13? And I said, yes. 
And uh, so I started here doing weekends in January of 2003. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah, and she says during that long time, morning TV weather has been always been about three or four basic things, uh, making people aware of dangerous weather, uh, knowing which coat to wear, you know, the one with the hood and the one without the hood, <laughs> being reminded to slow down on wet or icy roads, and using your low beams in the fog. Now, she's 62 now. She's not fond of getting up early in the morning and doing all the makeup and wardrobe for TV. She's not ready to slow down much, but she is ready for a different sleep schedule. That doesn't mean there aren't things MJ is going to miss. Strangely enough, I actually am going to miss seeing the early, early morning sky. I like going out. When I get up in the morning, I go out and look at the sky and the weather, and I, I, I like the early, early mornings, but not that early. I mean, as someone told me, when a, when, a, when a viewer asked me what time I get up, and I said, I said 2.15, and he goes, oh, that's almost yesterday. <laughs> I went, you know, you're right. <laughs> it's not even day. <laughs> I think a lot of the people in Seattle's morning news can identify yeah. with that early morning stuff. Fortunately, there's not much in the way of wardrobe and makeup. I mean, if I'm any indication. How of that. do you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the pancake, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> now, MJ's respected and loved by other meteorologists she's worked with and by her colleagues on the other stations. So I spent some time reaching out to a few current and former weather folks and put together this little montage. Um, not everyone identifies themselves, so see if you can identify the voices. Congratulations, MJ. Good job. And uh, the sunny skies and the cloudy skies will not be the same without your smiley face. Take care. MJ, meteorologist Kristen Clark from Como 4. Hey, congratulations. You now get to enjoy our stormy Pacific Northwest weather from the comforts of your couch. You deserve it. All the best in retirement. The people of Seattle definitely benefited from all your excellent work. And I know that although you may not be on television, at least in that function anymore, that you're going to be continuing to contribute to your community in so many different ways. Good luck, MJ. Hope I see you around. I hate to see you go, but I'm also super excited for you. You won't have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning anymore. So congratulations on the move. Thank you for being a wonderful person, a fantastic meteorologist, and I hope that our paths cross in the future. Yeah, and in that we heard Larry Schick, you know, old mm-hmm. King TV weather guy, and then uh, Kristen Clark over Como, Jeff Renner, former Jeff King Renner, TV weather person, him. and then Nick Allard there, of course, who... I recognize Nick's voice. Now, um, there was one more former colleague who insisted on sharing a message about MJ's retirement. Oh, MJ, I just wanted to tell you how excited I am that you're uh, retiring, and it's going to be really fun, too, because all you have to do is sit around and eat liver pizza all day, and you don't have to do nothing. And uh, you can get that husband of yours to, uh, you know, take care of manicuring your feet and all those kinds of things. But if you want to come visit me at the ranger station, come by any time, okay? And love you. Good luck on that retirement thing. Is that Roscoe Raccoon? That was actually Roscoe T. Raccoon, who still wow. lives with Winslow Barger. He spends most of his time inside of a red fabric bag, really? to Winslow, but he huh. uh, does come out on occasion. The old ranger station, Winslow told me, they had a set for the ranger station, um, that ended up out in Winslow's yard for his kids to play in, and it became damaged by weather. And actually, real raccoons lived in it for a while. <laughs> now, um, MJ's not going to be hitting the golf course or the senior center anytime soon. Um, her next project is a musical she's been working on based on a mm-hmm. children's book she published a few years ago. This is about where, I don't know if you ever read the, the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, but at the end, Frankenstein goes off disappearing across the Arctic wasteland. Um, so that inspired MJ. She's working with a composer. They've recorded a bunch of songs. The show is called Frankenstein Meets Santa. Uh, this is part of a song called All for Christmas. Ding, ding, dong. It's our working song. 
Frankenstein becomes an elf? Essentially, yeah. I don't want to you know, spoil it. Yeah, I don't alert. want to give it away either, but that's but what that it really sounds gets like. You, yeah, gets you in the spirit for the season. Maybe there'll be a part for a baritone, Dave. Could I don't know. Be. Um, Could be. Now, MJ's final show is tomorrow. She's been training her replacement, a guy named Brian McMillan, who, as far as I know, has never starred in the children's TV show. But if he did, when he retires, we'll cover it right here on Seattle's Morning News. I, I know you will. Felix Bunnell. All his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, That was Felix. really nice of you, Felix, to do that for MJ. Oh, she's a great person. It's, you know, people love their weather people. You start to identify with them like, like they love their, their morning radio people, too. So, anyway. Yes. Part of the family. Yes. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, before it was taken down in November 2020, the Elephant Car Wash sign was one of Seattle's most recognizable neon artifacts. Driving along Denny Way yesterday on the way home from work, I saw it, the pink elephants in all of its glory, its natural habitat. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell was there too, he was there when the vintage neon landmark was taken down from its perch. Felix brought to us by the King County Library System. Hey, was that you who drove by and shouted something out your window? Was it something like, you I heard love that? Cairo Radio? <laughs> I wasn't sure what, what you were actually saying. I thought it was something positive. I couldn't actually tell. It was, uh, hey, Felix, what's going on? Hey, good morning. Yeah, that was a big day for an iconic piece of roadside architecture. Uh, perhaps the end of an era, maybe? I don't know. Um, this is the Elephant Car Wash sign down at 7th Avenue in Denny Way. It stood at that spot for nearly 65 years was taken down yesterday by a crew from a local company called Western Neon. And I've known the Western Neon guys for almost 20 years. I've, they've, they've touched pretty much every iconic neon sign in the city. Now, I was talking to Andre Lucero from Western Neon on Monday night about the Holiday Star downtown. That's sort of a whole other story. Um, his company helped reimagine the old star, and they installed the new one last week. And we were talking about that, and he mentioned that the elephant was coming down, kind of offhandedly, uh, Tuesday morning. So... It was going to come down at 9 o'clock yesterday, so they'd already taken off most of the neon and done some other preliminary work, so I decided to head down there myself. I got there about 8 o'clock and took a bunch of pictures, which we have at My Northwest, which I put on Twitter. I got a good spot on the sidewalk and thought I'd be there for maybe a half hour or so <laughs> watching them take the elephant sign down. Now, one thing, that, that area has changed a ton in the last couple of weeks, or maybe 10 days ago, they actually tore down the rest of the car wash, so it's just a vacant lot now. It looks very different. So Western Neon had a truck with a cherry picker on it, there were two guys up there working on the sign. They were reaching into the elephant through all these little access panels. And what they were doing, or what they were trying to do, was uh, take off a series of bolts. And I only learned this from Andre on Monday night. The elephant is actually constructed in two halves, an upper half and a lower half. They had a harness attached to the top, which is connected to this very, uh, very tall mobile crane. And, you know, it's not shouldn't be any big surprise. All these signs were installed this way in the first place. So they're built with hooks on top, so it's very easy to move them. It's, it's, very, it's not unusual at all. So 9 a.m. came and went, and still the Western Neon guys were up there on the cherry picker with their arms inside the elephant, kind of reaching inside. About 9.30 or so, Andre came down and told me that the problem was the old bolts. You know, this thing was put together in 1956. They weren't stainless steel. They were these old, probably galvanized bolts were all rusted, and so they had to actually cut a bunch of them rather than actually unbolt them. 
And I think they ended up finding more bolts than they thought were there. And so they had to actually manually rotate the sign to get better access to those. Now, by this time, it's, you know, it's getting close to 10 o'clock. The TV stations were there. Seattle Times was there. And Western Neon came and told us that the top half of the elephant wouldn't be removed until about 2 o'clock. Mm. And, you know, it's raining and it's cold. <laughs> um, and I'd never been to one of these in person, but it kind of felt like a NASA launch. Yeah. You know, everyone's, the media's all there, and they're starting to all these sort of built-in holds and delays. Mm-hmm. And so I went home and had lunch and charged up my phone. Um, so I came back at 1.30 and took more pictures. And sure enough, about 2 o'clock, they lifted the top half up. It was very exciting. Uh, this is the part that has the elephant's head on it and the big letters for your know, car, the top half of the car wash part. One thing, it was pretty windy, and it hadn't been at 9 o'clock. It was pretty calm, but by the time 2 o'clock rolled around, that wind was gusting a lot. And I've seen that sign in the past when it was just sitting there. The wind kind of rotated. But they had a rope on each end, and there was a guy at each end of the rope kind of guiding it. It looked like a, um, not quite the Hindenburg. That'd be the wrong thing, but it was sort of a, like a dirigible landing. They lifted it up really high, moved it over to the parking lot, and they gently lowered it down onto a little trailer that was hitched to the back of a pickup truck. It's weird when you see a sign like that down at ground level when you've only seen it up on a post for a long time. It sometimes looks smaller than you think it was going to be or sometimes larger. And when it was being lifted, it looked smaller. But then on the ground, it looked bigger. It was kind of a weird optical illusion thing. But um, they, they put it on this trailer, and about 25 minutes later, they lifted the bottom half up. And the, the bottom half was on a really long pole. Like They kept lifting it and lifting it in this big, rusty, I don't know, probably 12-inch diameter pipe that the thing is on. Just it kept coming and coming and coming, and finally that popped up in the air, and they lowered that onto the ground. Now, it was weird. There was never a big crowd on hand. Uh, it was sort of part of it is, I guess, that location. You know, driving by there, it's kind of a bit of a freeway. Denny's a very sound, busy street. You sound disappointed in that, Felix. Yeah, I've been wrestling with this. And I'll, I'll say at no point during the whole maneuver yesterday did I get a lump in my throat or okay. feel that sort of emotional thing that I felt at other similar occasions. This isn't my first, you know, neon removal rodeo by, right. by any stretch well, of the imagination. Of but uh, I never did feel that emotional. This all felt very much kind of, a, I don't know, sort of a grim task or something. But when they did haul it away on the, the first half, they hauled it away on a pickup truck trailer. Um, there were a, a big crowd, maybe three people, all pointing their cell phones. I don't think I heard any clapping or cheering. <laughs> Some of those cars driving by were honking their horns. Um, but, you know, it's just sort of a... It's it's. I have mixed emotions about it because, you know, it's not going to the dump. It's going to this Western Neon shop. Mm-hmm. They're going to restore it. It's going to ultimately end up at the Museum of History and Industry, which is over on you know, Lake Union Park. And that's fine. It will be preserved. But I still feel like these neon signs should be preserved in the place where we've seen them for, what, 64 years. It's, it's not quite Mount Rainier or the Olympic Mountains, but it is part of the visual landscape. And you, get, you grow accustomed to it, and people give directions based on it, and it kind of gives this um, gives the, you know, a, a specific identity for a part of the city that's different from any other part of the city and different from other cities around the country or around the world. So that, one of the things I, I discovered in this whole process is that there was no permit required to take that sign down. Mm. Um, there was a permit for demolishing the car wash, which makes sense. But Seattle Department of Construction and Inspections told me that, you know, they have a very rigorous process for putting a sign up. They have sort of laws that apply to, you know, what you can and can't display. But when it comes time to take it down, you can just take it down. Um, you know, unless the sign has been landmarked, and that's only there's only one landmark sign in the city. You can you take a guess what the only landmark sign is? Mm. P.I. Globe. Oh, very good. Yeah, which, which, is, which used to be across the street from the elephant mm-hmm. from nineteen mm-hmm. from four, 1948 to nineteen eighty six. It was across the street. Anyway, so I feel like there's there's um, there's there's potential there to do some kind of changing of the regulations to address signs that haven't been landmarked 
but that are part of the visual landscape like this, there should have been some kind of review process, I think. But who knows? Um, but again, it will be saved. It will be inside. But it'll be sad to be driving down that speeding on Denny Way with the rain coming down and the darkness and not see those those super letters on one side and the car wash letters on the other side. So kind of mixed emotions, kind of a bitter, bittersweet moment for an amazing visual icon. Um, you know, I, I think about signs like the Bardall sign in Ballard. Mm-hmm. Like that That's not a landmark, and that could be taken down probably anytime anybody wanted to. So... I don't know. It's you get into private property issues and property rights and that sort of thing, but there is some cultural value to these once sort of garish commercial advertisements that just become part of the city's soul. So, are there any? I think there's there's some work to do. Are there any other signs out there? Do you think that still holds some of that that old school Seattle soul? I think Bardall is one of mm-hmm. them. The PI Globe is the PI Globe needs a lot of help. It's just been sitting there. Um, what should happen is the city, the Landmarks Board, should invest money in a survey where they just drive around and identify signs that fit some certain criteria as being part of the visual landscape that should be at least considered for landmark status. That would be the first step to do. Very good. So. All right, Felix Bunnell. Sorry you lost your pink elephant. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle.